to the human race Some kind of love and rhyme I'll be sliding down I'll be gliding down Try not to try too hard It's just a lovely ride You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, our main guest this week is Doug Casey. Doug is a highly respected author, publisher, and professional investor who graduated from Georgetown University in 1968. His book on profiting from periods of economic turmoil, uh, titled Crisis Investing, spent multiple weeks as the number one choice on the New York Times bestseller list and was the best-selling financial book in all of 1980. Uh, he has been featured uh, a featured guest on hundreds of radio and television shows, including David Letterman, Merv Griffin, Charlie Rose, Phil Donahue, Maury Povich, NBC News, and CNN, and has been the topic of numerous features in periodicals such as Times, Forbes, People, and the Washington Post. Doug, who divides his time between homes in Colorado, New Zealand, and Argentina, publishes the Casey Research. Uh, and has written newsletters and alert services for sophisticated investors for the past 28 years. Doug also served as a trustee on the Board of Governors of Washington College and Northwoods University and has been a director and advisor to nine different financial corporations. Welcome, Doug, to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. Well, thanks, Jay. It's a pleasure to be here. It's really great to have you. I, um, I'm sort of starstruck, I must say. I, I really, I'm really... Uh, it's really great to have you on. We have a lot of great people on this show, and this show is really picking up in popularity. Uh, it's growing it's growing like weeds in the summertime, and it's because of people like you uh, and a lot of other good people we've had on. So it's, it's really a pleasure to have you. Doug, you burst onto the hard money scene as a young man during uh, the late 1970s. I was a young guy then, too. Uh, I want to ask you about your views on the tumultuous 1970s uh, compared to the current uh, economic problems that we have. But before we get to that topic, could you refresh my memory and perhaps those of our listeners about crisis investing? What was the major theme of that book? Well, the subtitle of the book was Profits and Opportunities During the Next Great Depression. And when I wrote that book in 1978, uh, I expected pretty much what happened in 1980 and 81 and 82, but things got better. Uh, so the depression was, uh, was forestalled. It was put off. And uh, we've, we've had uh, 30 years of, uh, of boom times since, since the early 1980s. But I'm afraid what we're going into now is much, much more serious than what we almost had in the early 1980s. Uh, much, much more serious. Uh, and I don't think there's any way out of it this time. Uh, it, it, it's simply a question of cause having effect and actions having consequences. I'm not a gloom and doom kind of person. I'm an optimistic kind of person. In fact, my view of the future is that the future is not only going to be better than you can imagine, but probably better than you even can imagine. 
because technology keeps increasing and compounding upon itself because there are more scientists and engineers alive today than have ever been alive in all of human history put together previously because uh, the, the, the six billion people in the world uh, individually all want to improve themselves and they try to produce more than they consume and save the difference and that's how you become wealthy. So there's lots of reasons for optimism. I'm just saying this is that uh, cyclically uh, there are bad things that happen to the economy, mainly because of the government's intervention into the economy. And this is one of those times we're facing now. Well, it's really good to hear uh, hear your optimism, Doug, because we do have a lot of gloom and doomers. And I think maybe if you look at the short term, the cyclical uh, time frame that you're talking about, there is reason to be not to be terribly optimistic, but it's really... Uh, I, you know, your enthusiasm for the future and humankind and, and uh, the ability to make things better is refreshing, to, to say the least. Getting back to your book, though, do you think that book, Crisis Investing, first of all, can people still buy it or is it available? Yes, it's available on Amazon because, of, of course, there are millions of copies of the things that were sold by um, Simon and Schuster in uh, – no, it was Harper and Row actually. Mm-hmm. Harper and Row in uh, hardback and pocketbooks in paper. So it's out there, and I would stand by that book today. Uh, the basic uh, explanations that I gave of why depressions happen, what causes prosperity, and what you ought to do about it uh, are as good today as they were 30 years ago. Why? Because there's a certain amount of cyclicality to the economy. Uh, so, no, I'm, I'm very happy with that book. The important thing about that book is that the um, – the economic underpinnings of it, the theory in back of it, uh, was correct then and is correct now. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you, you, you just answered my question. The next question I was going to ask you, is your book timely now? Is it still, it's still in play? It still makes sense to, to read it because the same principles apply uh, you know, due, to the, due to the cycles that, uh, that uh, are pronounced, I would say, and I think you'd agree with this, are significantly pronounced, those cycles, by the intervention in the economy by government. Would you agree with that? Oh, completely. Uh, you know, the thing is, is that today everybody uh, all over the world, but certainly in America, uh, look to the government as, as a cornucopia. They look to it as the solution for whatever problems they see out there. And in point of fact, uh, not only is the government not the solution to problems, it is the actual cause of all the economic problems that we have today. Uh I think we're going into something now, Jay, that I call the Greater Depression, because it's going to be much more serious uh, than what we had in the 1930s. And I would define a depression as being a time when most people's standard of living drops significantly. And um, based upon that, based upon that definition, I would say that the depression started in 2008. Mm-hmm. And it's going to get, and right now, as we speak, if you look at this as a gigantic financial hurricane, economic hurricane, right now we're just in the eye of the storm. These governments have thrown trillions of currency units uh, at the situation to bail out failing banks, failing corporations, uh, so forth. And uh, it, it's papered things over momentarily, but I think that... Uh, this year, 2011, 
And certainly the year after, we're going to start coming out the other side of the storm, and it's going to be very, very ugly and long-lasting. Well, yeah, and that's the cyclicality. That's the pessimistic side of the view of the future that you're seeing. And what we want to get to in a little while is, you know, we want to ask you about your ideas, how we can uh, protect ourselves and our families as we go through the storm so we can come out the other side still alive and vibrant and maybe maybe even better off than we were before. But uh, hitting on this note that you just talked about, the severity of what you think is going to be worse than the 1930s, I had a question, a couple of questions here uh, in terms of the relative severity of different different time periods. First of all, I wanted to ask you, on a scale of 1 to 10, how would you rate the 1970s? Uh, with 10 being the most severe and 1 being the least severe. And then I'm going to ask you that relative to the 30s, and then what's to come? Yeah, that's a very good, that's, uh, that's, uh, that's a good question. And hard to answer, because uh, if we're going to take a scale of, let's say, 1 to 10, then perhaps we ought to rate 10 as the worst known depression in human history. Now, what might that okay. have been? Uh, and And where might that have occurred? Because... Uh, the people in Russia had a catastrophic depression in between roughly, roughly 1918 and 1989. Uh, was that a 10? Or how about what the Chinese people had to go through in between 1949 and roughly 1980? Uh, how do we rate the severity of that? And, you know, here's another, I think this observation might interest you. Uh, Herman Kahn, who was famous for having, oh, he, he was a futurist, uh, but he was famous for having written several books, one called Thinking About the Unthinkable, and another one was um, On Thermonuclear War, and another one was called On Economic Development, World, World Economic Development 1980 and Beyond. So I got to know him before he died. And there was one observation Herman liked to make, which I think was especially astute, and that was this. The period between 1914 and 1945 was a horrible period. You had two world wars, lots of little wars, like the Spanish Civil War, among others. Uh, you had the Great Depression. Uh, it was a catastrophic period. And despite the fact it was about the worst period of time we've had, well, almost ever, uh, the world economy grew, as best as we can tell, at an average rate of 1.8% per year compounded wow. through two world wars mm. and the Great Depression and everything else. So wow. it's all relative, I, I guess. But having kind of given you that context, first, I think this is going to be very bad. Uh, I hate to assign a, a number to it, uh, partially because of what I've just said, but I think one mm -hmm. of the things that's going to be happening in the years to come is that these governments are all going to destroy their national currencies. Uh, the dollar is going to reach its intrinsic value, which is basic, which of course is zero. And the question zero. is, what's going to happen if and when that happens? And it's, I think it's just a question of when it's going to happen. Because uh, everybody's accounts are in dollars, their debts are in dollars, their assets are in dollars, their wages are in dollars. Uh, and if the dollar ceases to exist, in effect, it's going to overturn the entire economic and financial structure of not just the U.S., but the entire world, because all these other currencies 
are, are, are backed by U.S. dollars, basically. Fifty other countries around the world uh, use the U.S. dollar heavily in day-to-day transactions as much as they do their own national home currencies. And, and, of course, there are four countries in the world that use the dollar as their national currencies. So this is uh, this is very serious. Mm. So you're not ready to assign a, a, a relative scale, but let's say the 1970s would be child's play compared to the 1930s, and, and what you see here is more severe than the 30s, potentially. Yeah, that's, that, 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 that's right. I, I think we can say, say that very safely. I think this is going to be... This, this is really going to be a, a serious earthquake. And it's not just the destruction of the currency. That's the most serious thing. But these governments are all bankrupt. And their, 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 prim- their, their primary um, uh, directive is to maintain themselves. So they're going to be trying to raise taxes to get more money into their coffers. Uh, they're going to continue spending money. Uh, it's uh, it, it's very serious. They're going to increase regulations because people are going to want them to do something in the futile hope yeah. that they can make things better. So um, uh, I think you're going to see immense political turmoil. And beyond that, uh, when there's political turmoil, these governments always like to blame somebody else, and it's easier to blame a foreigner. And I think you're going to see uh, a lot of military turmoil, too, uh, especially on the part of the U.S., because, I mean, we have an absolutely bloated military, and it's like a gigantic hammer. Uh, and if you have a gigantic hammer, after a while, everything starts to look like a nail, and that's what's going on. So. <laughs> Well, Doug, that's uh, but but looking at our military, it's bloated, as you say. The U.S. is, uh, you know, I mean, we're printing money to pay for everything. Uh, will we be able to afford this bloated military, or is that thing is that military going to implode? It's, it's going to, you know, maybe we can't afford it. Is that is that wishful thinking on my part, or no? It's not. I think you're very realistic about that. Uh, the fact is, is that. When you look at all of the income of the U.S. government, uh, corporate taxes, personal income taxes, where most of it comes from, and Social Security, which is supposed to be set aside in a separate <laughs> lockbox of some type, but it's not. It's yeah. used for current operating uh, uh, right. expenses. Uh, there's nothing. And then you look at the expenditures, the amount they have to pay out in Social Security and Medicare and Medicaid and for to do all the things that they do, and of course the U.S. military, there's simply not enough money to go around. So what I'm saying is that uh, we're the same thing that happened to the Soviet military 20 years ago could very easily happen to the American military at this point. No, we certainly had a guest on the show. I think it will happen. Pardon? You think it will happen? Uh, I think it's inevitable. So, I, I think it's yeah. absolutely inevitable. The, the nobody knows how many bases the U.S. government has around the world. There are all kinds of estimates of how many bases, depending on what size they are and this and that. But there's probably something like a thousand U.S. military bases uh, in in the world today, and most of them are going to close. Uh, I don't know what's going to happen to all those soldiers. I don't know what's going to happen to these interminable wars in Afghanistan and Iraq, 
uh, well, they're going to be terminated because they're unaffordable. But I hope they don't start another yeah. war in the meantime. Maybe no. with Iran. I don't know well, who's it, on their card next. Yeah, yeah, it's a desperate, desperate people do desperate things. Desperate governments do desperate things, I suppose. Uh, we, I, we had Lawrence Kotlikoff, who was a uh, professor of economics. Uh, he is a professor of economics at Boston University. He was on Clinton's economic team. He was a guest on this show not that long ago. And he talked about the present value of all of these off-balance sheet commitments of the United States government. It's something like $202 trillion going forward. Uh, just just cannot ever be paid. So they're going to try to do it, obviously, with printing press, printing press money. Doug, I'd like to get back to what you said earlier in the show. We talked about, uh, you talked about 1980, 81. You figured we were going into a depression then. It was delayed. And I re- remember very well that, uh, you know, the first house that I had, I owned, we had a 17.5% mortgage on it. Volcker came in and slammed the brakes on the monetary, on the uh, money creation, driving interest rates up. And it was the best thing that could have happened probably at that time. It was painful. It was the deepest recession we had since the Great Depression at that point in time. But, uh, you know, we started savings. Our savings rate went up. I think it was the highest real rate of interest, I, I remember that uh, reading, uh, since the Civil War. But what it did was cause Americans to save and stop consuming so much, and it paved the way for another couple of decades of, of considerable prosperity, although it's been, uh, you know, ruined, in my view, by the, by the enormous amount of uh, money that was created. But let me ask you this. Uh, Doug, do you, do you think, uh, you know, Bernanke likes to say it's no problem uh, fighting inflation. What's the bigger problem is deflation, is that when, you know, people won't spend their money and they get scared and they just hold on to things. So his idea is that you can always fight inflation. You can just do what what uh, what to Paul Volcker did. But I remember in uh, bringing this issue up with Ron Paul and Mark Faber at a uh, cocktail party in San Francisco three, four years ago and asking uh, both of those gentlemen, whether they thought it would be possible for a Greenspan at that time or whoever's the Fed chairman to come in and do, do what Volcker did in 1980, and they both said without batting an eye, absolutely not. There's no way that uh, that the Federal Reserve could ever do, do anything as bold as that. And, and of course, Volcker was invited into the uh, to the to the Obama administration, but it seemed as though he was pretty much shoved aside. Yeah, any thoughts about there being the... Um, the the political will, or let's say the um, the intestinal fortitude on the part of a Federal Reserve chairman to shut down the monetary growth and uh, usher in a correction of this system anytime, you know, anytime in the future? You think that's a possibility? I, I don't think it's possible at all. I think it's the best thing that could happen. The best thing that could happen today mm-hmm. is that there was a, if you would, a controlled demolition of the system. But nobody wants to be at the... Uh, at the rudder, when you actually bring down the uh, the corrupt system that's been built up over many years, so they'll try to continue it and kick the can on down the road, so it's the next guy's problem. Uh, there's nothing wrong with deflation, incidentally. All the def- I'm sure you'll agree with me. Deflation that's uh, it's simply a state where your money becomes worth more, and that's a wonderful thing. It means that people <laughs> want to save their money, and, and saving is how you become wealthy. It's by producing more than you consume and saving the difference. So people like um, uh, Bernanke, it's amazing to me that people have any talk talk of him with any respect at all because uh, the, the man is a fool, uh, quite frankly. He's... <laughs> He's, uh, he's, 
he's he's been living in castles constructed in the air for his entire life. He's never been in the real world. He's he, he he's an academic who's built his entire career on fallacious economic theories. Uh, so you can't look to this guy for the solution. In fact, one of the things that should be done is the Federal Reserve itself should be abolished. Uh, and that doesn't mean that the U.S. government should take over money. Money is what the market dictates. And historically, that's always been gold and silver for very good reasons. Uh, that's what should happen. It's not going to happen. I don't know what's going to happen in the future, but it's going to be a wonder of the world to behold. I think it's going to be catastrophically ugly uh, as this thing comes apart in the years to come. I don't think, I don't think people take mm-hmm. this seriously enough. Uh, what it means is that uh, the money in your wallet no longer has value. It's going to become very hard in an advanced industrial society to buy and sell and pay for things and employ people if you don't have a proper medium exchange like money. Uh, <laughs> if the dollar if the dollar loses value, but that's what's going to happen. What? Well, Doug, you know, you, you mentioned that you should let the markets decide and, and certainly uh, and get rid of the Federal Reserve. And Ron Paul, every single time he's uh, – every, every single congressional uh, session uh, or let's say every, every Congress, a new Congress, he's always introduced legislation to get rid of the Fed and the IRS. Uh, and now there's a growing movement in that direction, of course, with the Tea Party and others. I mean, it's a, people are really uh, getting sort of ticked off at the Fed. They're seeing all, you know, how they're bailing out all their friends on Wall Street and so forth. So you, you mentioned uh, not to let government do it. I'm hoping to get, I'm expecting to get Dennis, uh, Dennis Kucinich, a, uh, a liberal congressman, on this show sometime in the near future. And I'm going to have Ron Paul on it again. Uh, Dennis has proposed exactly what you're saying we shouldn't do, as I understand it. He has proposed an end the Fed legislation that would require uh, or that would hand over the reins of the printing press to the uh, to the Congress. I, I would imagine that that could even be worse than the Fed. Any idea, any thoughts on that? Yeah, that's literally jumping uh, out of the frying pan into the, uh, the fire. Uh, I think Kucinich is a nutball, quite frankly. <laughs> I mean, that's, well, I've had a lot of It's really as simple as that. So, uh, uh, I'll, I'll be interested in, in, in tuning in and, and listening to uh, to what he puts up as a, a defense for these ridiculous ideas he has. I, I'm sure he can't defend them. I don't think he understands them, quite frankly, or he certainly doesn't understand their consequences. But um, it, it's really a pity what's happened to the United States itself. Uh, and, and I don't call it America because America has ceased to exist. Uh, it was a wonderful idea. Uh, America it was a unique, a unique idea, but it's been replaced by the United States, which is just another nation state, of which there are hundreds that cover the world like a skin disease at this point. And and we seem to be looking more and more like every other country around the world. And we're going to talk to you about various countries around the world sometime in the second hour uh, of the show, the second half hour that you're with us. Um, I, I just wonder, my my uh, partner, Roger Wiegand, who's uh, serving as a co-host today, is with us. Roger, would you have any, any questions for Doug at this point? Yeah, I was, I'm curious about what uh, Doug is doing in Argentina and South America and what he could uh, tell our, our listeners about uh, currency bonds and security and opportunity in South America. I'm very interested. Okay, Roger. Well, 
Actually, the first book that I wrote uh, before Crisis Investing was a book called The International Man, which was a guidebook to making the most of your personal freedom and financial opportunity around the world. And uh, that book, incidentally, became the largest selling book in the history of Rhodesia because I went to Rhodesia a number of times during the war there, and obviously it was exactly the kind of book that the Rhodesians uh, wanted to buy uh, at that time, because they were all uh, making what they called the chicken run out of Rhodesia. There were a quarter million people of European background and descent uh, in Rhodesia then. Now in Zimbabwe, there are only maybe uh, maybe three or 4,000 of them left. They've all gone elsewhere. So I've been looking at this for... For, for many years, and uh, I'm afraid that uh, it's very clear to me at this point that the United States is really on the slippery slope, and I've been to 175 countries, and I've lived in 12 at this point, and uh, I've had to decide, well, where do I really want to make my permanent base? I've been to all these places, I've thought about them, uh, and I, I've ruled out Europe as being far too highly taxed, far too highly regulated, and having all of the problems that the United States does, uh, in addition to uh, immense demographic problems and um, ethnic problems with the, uh, especially Muslim immigrants from other parts of the world. So I'm afraid Europe is out. Uh, I like the Orient a great deal. I've spent a lot of time in the Orient. I've lived in the Orient uh, for, for years. And I like the Orient. The problem with the Orient, although that's where the future lies, is that as uh, somebody of European descent, you're never going to become part of that society, uh, which is a double-edged sword. It's not a bad thing. Uh, you can be a foreign ghost and you're left alone. But I prefer to have the option open to me. Uh, Africa is entirely too problematical. South America is where the future lies. And I've looked at all the South American countries, and it came down to Argentina, frankly. Argentina uh, is a, a huge country. It has a small population. Most of that population is centered around Buenos Aires. And uh, it, uh, it's had a lot of economic problems, especially since Juan Perón in the 50s. But um, uh, one of the – I always try to look at the bright side. And one of the bright sides of this is that there's no debt in Argentina, so that the prices in Argentina are low. And because they're not propped up by a mountain of debt, they're real. And there's actually a chance that Argentina is going to start acting intelligently in the future. And even if it doesn't start intelligent, acting intelligently in the future, it doesn't bother me because the government leaves you alone here, unlike the U.S. government. So I can talk a lot more about it, but that's kind of it in a nutshell. Argentina is actually the most European country in the world from a demographic point of view. It's more European than any country in Europe at this point, quite surprisingly. And the standard of living uh, in Argentina is extraordinarily high. Yeah, you know, so it's, it's rather amazing. As, as, as stupid as their government has been and as much damage as it's done, uh, it, it's a fantastic place. And if you're an American, you'll double your standard of living down here. And you'll increase your, the opportunities available to you by a factor of four, as far as I'm concerned, uh, it's uh, it's a great place okay. to be. Doug, we're going we're going to ask you a little bit 
bit more about Argentina in the second uh, hour. We've got to go to a commercial break right now. When we come back, I want to ask you about that and uh, also uh, Uruguay, which you're talking to us from today. So we'll be right back with Doug Casey. Don't go away. Stay connected. Sign up for our newsletter. Go beyond your favorite Voice America shows. Visit iradioblog.com. Dasha Capital is offering the world's first and only corporate stockpile of rare earth minerals, giving investors the ability to participate in the physical ownership of these critical elements without the associated mining and execution risk. Rare earth elements are used in many industries, from aerospace and automotive to high-tech and green-tech. Dasha Capital is listed on the TSX.V in Toronto under the symbol DAC and on the OTCQX in the U.S. under symbol DCHAF. Please visit www.dashacapital.com to learn more. That's D-A-C-H-A-Capital.com. Great Panther Silver is a profitable primary silver producer trading on the Toronto Stock Exchange under the symbol GPR. GPR operates two 100% owned mines in Mexico, has a solid track record of increasing production, and continues to add resources and reserves. GPR has developed an organic growth strategy that will see production increase by more than 65% over the next two years. Great Panther Silver is also generating excitement at its new discovery in Guanajuato and expanding its drill program. Look for GPR on the TSX. Western Pacific is a gold exploration company focused on finding major world-class deposits in the western United States. Western's Ace in the Hole, a project called Mineral Gulch, lies along trend with the Carlin-style Long Canyon deposit, recently acquired by Frontier Development. Catalysts going forward will be from drill results. One drill campaign is underway at the South Lita Project in Nevada, with permitting underway to drill 33 holes at Mineral Gulch. Western Pacific trades on the Venture Exchange under the ticker WRP. The high-risk but high-reward business of mineral exploration is key to discovery and development of America's next generation of mines. A leader in this search is Mill Rock Resources. Based in Anchorage, Mill Rock is revealing the astounding potential for gold deposits in the Alaska frontier. In Arizona, the target is giant, hidden porphyry copper deposits. Financing this search are joint venture partners Tech, Ballet, Inmet, Kinross, and Altius, major industry players. Together, the aim is discovering world-class gold and copper deposits to help secure America's productive future. Investors can share in the potential rewards. Millrock trades on the TSX Venture Exchange, symbol MRO. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. to the human race Some kind of love and ride I'll be sliding down I'll be gliding down Try not to try too hard It's just a lovely ride You're listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with your host, Jay Taylor. If you have a question or comment about today's show, Jay would love to hear from you at 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You can also send an email to questionsfortaylor at gmail.com. That's questions, the number four, taylor at gmail.com. Now, back to our program. Welcome back to Turning Hard Times into Good Times. I am your host, Jay Taylor. Well, I failed to mention at the start of the third hour of today's show that the sponsors for this third hour are Gold Bullion Development, Crocodile Gold, 
North Atlantic Resources, Athabasca Uranium, Golden Minerals, Western Pacific, and Focus Metals. Well, Doug, uh, before we left, we talked a little bit about inflation and, and your view, and certainly mine as well, that we'd be much better off if they stopped printing money, if the government stopped doing anything, if they just 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 stop doing anything and just uh, went home if we didn't have a government at all almost you might say in some ways if we would just let the markets decide and stop increasing the money supply we would have a very very quick fast and furious deflation i think the economic wheels would fall off but then uh, as in the 1980s uh 1980 or so 81 to 82 uh you know the the bad debts uh, the a lot of that stuff was cleared out, and we went on to some uh, substantial growth for a while again. Um, there are some people uh, that we've had on this show. Ian Gordon would be one. Uh, Robert Prechter's been on this show, and I, and I believe if he were still with us, the late John Exter would also be of this opinion, that in spite of all the money that's being created, uh, the attempts by Bernanke to, to overcome the natural deflationary forces that would occur if they just took their mitts off the economy, that in spite of this enormous amount of printing of money, uh, since, since fiat money is actually uh, created with debt, it's debt money, it's liability money, unlike gold, which is an asset money, is intrinsic value, we have in the, I like to say that debt uh, is the raw material from which money is created. So if you look at what's happening, debt is growing much more rapidly in the United States than income is growing, and it's actually growing exponentially. And uh, and so the argument that we get from people like Ian Gordon, uh, I think Robert Rector as well, perhaps uh, Exter, is that um, is, is that the forces of deflation will ultimately overcome, overwhelm uh, the printing presses. Uh, but I don't believe you agree with that. Uh, I, I don't. Uh, I understand the argument, and it's uh, it, it's a, a rational argument that's worthy uh, of discussion, but. I, I don't think that we're likely to have a deflation because any time that uh, the potential for a deflation comes up, for instance, uh, the collapse of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, they were bailed out so that they weren't allowed to default on their debts, which would have brought down the banking system. Uh, General Motors and Chrysler, uh, they were bailed out so that those debts couldn't be defaulted on or, or not all of them could be defaulted on. All of the banks uh, that um, uh, in the U.S., nobody's going to lose a dollar uh, depositing money in a U.S. bank because uh, uh, the, the Fed's going to print it up. They're not going to let a banking collapse happen, and they can do that. They actually can do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and any, anything that's big enough to make a difference, too big to fail in other words, will be bailed out. So the, I, I think they can effectively stop a deflation from happening. Uh, meanwhile, they're going to be creating trillions more dollars. Uh, I, I think we're much like more likely to, to, to wind up in a, a situation that, that approaches that of Zimbabwe uh, a few years ago. Now, mm. I, anything, anything well, is possible, of course, but uh, I don't think it's the way to bet. Well, certainly, uh, Ron Paul agrees with you. I think most people that, that are free market people believe that what you're saying is right. And I would guess that, uh, you know, we, we have this, uh, gosh, I'm having this. Um, okay, so uh, what I was going to say is, okay, so Ron Paul is suggesting, and he suggested in this show, that they have the 
wherewithal to channel money into the masses. One of the one of the things I see, Doug, that's happening so far is all of this quantitative easing. The money's pumped into the banking system. The banks aren't lending it out because they can't find creditworthy borrowers for the most part, but they are speculating with it. It's going through hedge funds and the like, and we're seeing a rise in commodity prices, energy and food prices, which actually make it more difficult, I would argue, for the common folks. I think this this is part of the decline in the living standards that you're talking about is sort of broad-based. There are certain people, of course, that are doing quite well. Wall Street is doing quite well. It gets bailed out when it makes mistakes. Uh, you know, living in New York City, we all sort of benefit from the fact that the rest of the country is, you know, the parasites are taking what's left of the wealth of America and, and pulling it to New York and the, among the financial centers. Uh, but um, uh, so, so I suppose that what you need, do you think, though, that what needs to be done, and do you think this will be done, it might see sort of a massive uh, channeling of, of printing press money to the masses through the tax code or other, otherwise? Well, of course, they are doing that now. As you know, there are almost 45 million uh, Americans that are getting food stamps from the government right now. Mm. And uh, that's a, a direct uh, aid to, to these people. You've got many more that are getting their medical bills paid and many more that are getting Social Security checks. The government's going to keep printing up money to, to do that uh, but it, it, it's because of this immense state intervention in a very unstable economy. It makes it very hard to save in terms of dollars because the dollars are going to lose value mm-hmm. rapidly. It makes it very hard to invest, mm-hmm. uh, which is to say uh, allocate dollars to, to, to create more wealth because uh, almost anything can go wrong when you invest today. So I think what we're entering into is the world of the speculator. Uh, where mm-hmm. a speculator is not a gambler and he's not a trader, but he's somebody that tries to capitalize on politically caused distortions in the marketplace. And, of course, one of the most ideal speculations in our lifetimes was buying gold in 1970 when it was controlled mm-hmm. by the government at $35 an ounce. Well, you know what's happened since then. So... What you've got to do is try to find out with the trillions of currency units governments around the world are creating, where are those trillions of currency units likely to go? And I think they're going to ignite other bubbles in the economy. Uh, and I think one of the bubbles is going to wind up being ignited in gold and silver. I think that uh, gold and silver will, in the next generation, once again be used as day-to-day money in commerce. Now, whether that's is computer blips or gold and silver on credit cards, uh, but it'll be the numeraire, no longer uh, fiat money. But um, I think in, be, in, in between now and then, there's likely to be a bubble ignited in gold and silver. And it could be there's a bubble ignited in the stock market, although I'm don't feel as good about that because stocks are generally overpriced. But I think one thing that you covered, Jay, and I do too, of course, is it's very likely that there's going to be a bubble in these junior gold and silver mining stocks because it combines, mm-hmm. I think I think there could be billions and billions that flow into them. 
And uh, mm-hmm. these things, as you know, they they don't just go up 10 or 20% in a bull market. They go up 10 or 20 times in a bull mm-hmm. market. And so I, that's one thing that I think uh, is an, a very good speculation at this point. Well, the... Uh, th- that's right. A lot like the internet stocks, I suppose. Uh, you know, a couple of a decade or so ago, uh, George Soros says we're already in a, uh, a bubble for gold, and, and yet he's uh, reportedly buying more of it. What do you think? Uh, where do you think he's coming from? And do you think we're in a bubble yet, or how, at what stage are we in this bull market? For uh, we're not in a bubble yet. Uh, this this bull market in gold started out in about the year two thousand, where nobody even know, knew gold existed. They were writing books, making fun of it. Uh, and that's, of course, that was the bottom of the market. And uh, bull markets generally have three stages. The first is the stealth stage, where the market goes up, but nobody knows and nobody cares. And then there's the wall of worry stage, which in the case of gold started around uh, 2005. And this is where all people recognize that it's done pretty well. But people are, but the bulls and the bears are fighting with each other, and uh, it's very worrisome. I think we have not, by any means, entered the mania stage where it goes parabolic, and people buy it out of fear and greed, and they'll also buy gold out of prudence. But um, no, no, we're not in a bubble yet. That's ridiculous. Uh, yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't. I, I don't know what world people are living in if they think gold is in a bubble. I, they don't understand it. I would say Soros doesn't really understand gold, but he's a smart speculator, and he can see that he can make money on it. But he's <clears throat> he's buying it just just to increase his wealth, I suppose. Well, that's, of course, a good enough reason. But he doesn't understand where it fits into the economy because the things that he's written on economics are just complete nonsense. As smart as he is and as good a speculator as he is, it doesn't mean that he understands economics, and he doesn't. No. no. Well, certainly the wall of worry, Doug, it makes sense to me because one of the things I hear from people who are not, uh, who, who are not, uh, into going, buying gold or haven't followed gold, don't understand gold is, well, it's gone up so much already, it's too late, isn't it? And that's, uh, I think that wall of worry that you're talking about. Yeah, exactly. But, uh, the mania won't be here in, until, uh, our mothers ask us where they can buy gold. And the man in the street is lined up at coin stores and things like that. We're a long way from that. We did see some of that in 1980, I think, in New York City. I can remember there were lines of people, you know, people that knew nothing about gold wanting to buy it. So, so I think we're, we're, there's a lot of time to make a lot of money yet in this business, you think, in, this, in, this, uh, in the junior mining shares. Doug, is that where you would suggest that people should go primarily? Or should they start by owning some gold bullion and silver? Yeah, they should definitely start by owning the the gold coins and bullion and and keep them in their own possession. And secondarily, uh, if you're going to own more than just a little bit in your own possession, uh, store them outside your native country. Uh, for most of your listeners, I pr- presume that's the U.S. But your biggest risk in the world today is actually not a market risk. It's political risk. It's what the government's going to do to you. Uh, and, it, it, of course, it's time to eat the rich. So if, if you have any assets at all, uh, you're who they're targeting. So you've got to diversify your wealth outside of your home country. That's important. And then the next stage is to uh, start learning about these these stocks 
because there are, there are several thousand of them. Most of them are garbage, of course, but uh, some of them are uh, well run. They're looking for the metals. They have competent management, and they'll find it. And it's but but even the garbage during bull markets and these things can go a hundred to one. Yeah. So uh, well, we I, I think it's an ex- I think it's an excellent place. People ought to start finding out about it now and starting to dip their toes in the water at least. Doug, this may be a good a good time then for you to tell people where they can go to avail themselves to your newsletter, which covers that. What, where should they? What's the website they should go to? Well, we have two. One is called caseyresearch.com, and we have a number of free publications there, including the one that I do every week. So you can sign up there for free at caseyresearch.com or, or go to dougcasey.com, which leads you to the same place. And uh, just sign up for a free publication and see if you like that well enough to go for the more advanced ones. Sure. Excellent idea. I know that you've been following this sector for many, many years, and uh, and you have a team of people who, who are very smart that are out there, in many cases, visiting the projects and talking uh, and learning a lot about it, uh, about the companies, the projects, and I know your people do an excellent job, so I think people would do very well to uh, uh, to check out Doug's work and his team's work. Uh, Roger, would you have any more any any question for Doug at this point in time? Well, you yeah, we've Doug's- got a really busy year coming up here in 2011, <laughs> and I would be curious what Doug thinks about the markets uh, for the first half and second half of the year. I think we're pretty happy for the first five six months, and the second half to me is getting pretty scary. Well, that's reasonable. I think gold is going to go higher this year. I, I, I would be, uh, I would expect that gold could easily hit 2000 in 2011. And then the, and then the, uh, mania starts and it goes parabolic in 2012. So I, I wouldn't disagree with you. I, I'm, I'm a little bit chagrined about the fact that I expect things to get really out of control in 2012 because there are all these Looney Tunes types out there that think they know something about the Mayan calendar and think the world is going to come to an end. So it, I, I, I really feel rather sheepish about picking that year for that reason. <laughs> well, uh, that's interesting, Doug. I know that our <clears throat> Chen Lin, who is a, a brilliant investor, is a partner of mine, <clears throat> and he's on this show a lot, is, is also thinks that 2012 will be a good year for commodities in general. This year he, he's very bullish, but he thinks 2013 is a year in which we could see a real devastating implosion. But So you think 2012 we see a parabolic move in gold, and, and you think that's when we might get something like hyperinflation in the economy in general? I think that's I think that's when it's really going to start falling apart in earnest. Yes, so now is still an excellent time to position yourself, uh, which means uh, put most of your savings in gold and silver. I'm sorry, but silver is at thirty dollars and gold is at close to fourteen hundred dollars because they're not cheap anymore. But then again, there's nothing in the whole world that's cheap at this point because of these trillions of currency units that they're printing up. So, uh, yes, now's the time to, to buy the metals. Now's the time to diversify your assets internationally. Very important point that most people overlook. And, uh, and now is when you should start looking for speculative opportunities because uh, saving and investing in, in their conventional forms is going to become very hard. So you're going to be forced to be a speculator in the years to come. 
But I've got some I've got some more good news, and the good news is that most of the real wealth in the world is still going to exist, no matter how bad the financial markets become. So mm-hmm. it's just going to change ownership. So this is an opportunity to to be on the receiving end of that transaction. Well, I think that's right, Doug. And what we're going to see, in my view, is that you know it's not you know people say gold is going up. I would argue that it's not gold going up so much as it's paper going down. That is, paper is being debased. Paper money is being debased so rapidly that, in fact, the people then that have the gold, you said there's going to be a transfer of wealth. Wealth isn't going to go away. It's going to be transferred to the people that have the gold. Now, you said it's time to eat the rich, right? We're seeing the. Oh, I didn't say that. But, that have but that's but that's no, what, no, but that's I mean, what a. A certain class of people feel, yes. (laughs) Yeah, excuse me. I know you're not saying that, Doug. So uh, what happens, and this brings me to, I think, one of the most important questions at this time, is what happens to those of us who had the insight to buy gold at $300 and who are sitting on a fair amount of it, and all of a sudden we have wealth and the people that played within the system don't have it, are we not going to be targeted? either through the tax code or just outright confiscation? Do you think that's likely in the United States, let's say? Yeah, no, it's very likely. And this is why I said you've got to diversify politically so that all your eggs aren't in one political basket because your main danger is political, just what you were just talking about. So you have to diversify internationally. I'm going to see you down here in Argentina in in March, am I not, Jay? Well, I hope so. If I can get Mrs. Taylor to let me out of the house long enough, I suppose, and she'll come with well, me. She will, I guess I well, well, I would suggest you take her along, and I, I can promise her a most enjoyable interlude. Okay. Well, we look forward to that. That'll be a lot of fun, Doug. That's for sure. But now, um, it, Argentina. Let's talk about Argentina a little bit more because I know you have a project down there. The one I want to go visit. The one you're just talking about. Tell us a little bit about what you're doing down in Argentina. And then also, uh, it's my understanding, your view is that you, well, you said a little while ago, you said Argentina is the place, probably the safest place in your view, after you've done all this research, lived in a hundred, lived in a, visited 175 countries, lived in 12 of them, that you, you more than most people have, have sort of scoped out the world scene and you have a better idea, certainly, than I have. I've been to a half a dozen countries perhaps in my life and I've only lived in one. Uh, for any length of time. So um, <clears throat> why Argentina? Tell us, first of all, why Argentina? Why is that place? Why does that look better? We had we had an economist from Argentina named Adrian Salbucci who grew up in the United States. He's been on the show a couple of times. Adrian believes that, that much of Argentina's problems have been sort of imposed on it by Outside forces, you know, by by the ruling, the the global ruling elite, the let's say, you know, the IMF, the World Bank, and the, the sort of the powers behind the throne in the global scene. But uh, I, I don't know that Adrian would think Argentina is not the least worst place to live necessarily. But anyway, can you tell us why Argentina? What do you see about Argentina that makes it such a a good place to go? And then maybe you can talk more specifically about your project and the part of Argentina where your project is. Sure. Well, to start with, uh, any Argentine with any sense at all has most of his money outside of Argentina. I mean, that's rule number one. Just like any American with any sense at all at this point is going to have most of his money outside the U.S. And the reason for that is because the government of the U.S. is doing exactly the same kind of thing that, that got Argentina into all the trouble that it has gotten into over the last 60 years. So that, that's quite correct. But... For a foreigner who's living in Argentina, 
Uh, one of the nice things about Argentina is that uh, although the government's extremely stupid, it's also extremely ineffectual. Uh, the average guy has no respect for it. Uh, the average guy doesn't believe in paying taxes. The average guy doesn't like the police. He doesn't like the army. Uh, and he doesn't like the tax authorities. And they're very ineffectual. Uh, they basically leave you alone, certainly if you're a tourist as opposed to a citizen resident. So uh, it's a, that's very good. Culturally, the place is fantastic. Uh, just a wonderful place to hang out. Uh, it's very advanced technologically. And where I am is in the northwest of Argentina, which is kind of like a combination of Taos, New Mexico, uh, and Napa, Sonoma, California. It's the middle of a grape-growing region. So uh, what we've done is we've built a resort there, which has absolutely everything that a civilized person could possibly want, next to a fantastic Aspen-like little town. Uh, we've got everything from a championship 18-hole golf course to polo fields to 40 kilometers of riding, biking, jogging trails, horses, wine, a, a social clubhouse with a billiards room, a fantastic gym and spa, uh, and about 50 other things. Uh, so it, it's probably in terms of uh, everything that you might want to live and enjoy yourself uh, about the best place in the world. And I, I, from the point of the physical facilities to the area to the climate, so it's just a fantastic place to be. I don't understand why most people live where they live. Well, if they've got to work and, and yeah. so forth, and play, that's, that's one thing. But if you're in a position that you can diversify yourself and get a vacation home abroad or you can actually move and live someplace better, uh, I'd suggest this is it. So if people want to look at it, they can go to, they can, there's a website. They can go to, uh, it's called La Estancia de Cafajate, but it's easier just to go to a website, which is uh, L-A-E-S-T, laest.com, and take a look. Sounds really, really good, Doug. I have gone there and I've looked at it, and it just looks absolutely beautiful, and I can't wait to get down there and see it. Uh, do you, in terms of, so you have properties for sale, like the, the people can go down there and live down, they can buy a, a house with some ground around it, and some acreage? Yes, absolutely. It's a very international community. We have uh, on the, uh, on the uh, 1,300 acres that we have right on the edge of this fantastic little town, we have 360 lots, and uh, so far about 170 have already been sold. It's a new project. We've only been started it from green green fields four years ago, mm. and buyers have come from 16 different countries, which I think is mm. pretty impressive. It's a very international, very sophisticated community with uh, the kind of people that um, I've lived in Aspen, Colorado for years, and I'm rather disenchanted with that town and a lot of my neighbors, but... Uh, the kind of people that are drawn to this development, to this place, are the kind of people that you'd probably want to spend time with and uh, mm -hmm. play a game of chess with or a game of bridge with or a game of poker with down at the clubhouse. Very interesting. Uh, Doug, how are the, uh, the real estate prices down there compared to, say, in Aspen? Oh, I would say for the same thing, about 10% oh, is that right? of what you'd pay in Aspen. Uh -huh. yeah, about 10%. 
Yeah, that, that would be about correct for Aspen. But you've got to remember that Aspen's very, very expensive, even though prices are coming down there. But prices yeah. are going up in Argentina while they're coming down in Aspen. But still, it's about a 10 to 1 spread for a comparable thing, I would say, yeah. That's, uh, that's uh, rather amazing, I would say. Uh, and it, it, although, the, although it's more expensive to eat in a restaurant in Argentina now than it was even a few years ago because the government down here is playing with the currency and prices. Uh, but still, I would say you can get a comparable meal for it's about a third of what you would in the U.S. still. Is, that's is pretty that good. right? Huh. I would say it's still accurate. It used to be, used to be a lot less than that, but it's, a, a third is still pretty good. What's not to like about that? I, I, uh, I'm, I'm really looking forward to visiting down there, Doug. I really am, and I, perhaps some of our listeners will check out your site as well, lest.com. Doug, uh, we're almost out of time, but I wanted to just ask you about uranium. Uh, we talk about yellow, uh, you know, the yellow metal, gold, but there's that other yellow metal, uranium. Uh, we're going to have coming on with us uh, Mira Nani in a few minutes after the break. Uh, uranium Energy figures to be the next uranium producer in the United States, going into production later this year. Do you have any thoughts on uranium? Are you bullish on uranium? I am bullish. Uh, I like Amir Anani uh, personally very much. He's a very competent guy. He's a member of our Explorers League, incidentally. Oh, and, he wasn't uh, aware. Hmm. Yes, he is. He's a very, very competent guy. And uh, uh, I've got to say that uranium is by far the safest, the cheapest, and the cleanest type of mass power generation uh, that's available. And that will be the case for at least another generation. Uh, so I'm a huge bull on, uh, on, on uranium and nuclear power generally. Mm -hmm. uh, let me just ask you relative to gold, uh, you like you more bullish on silver than gold at this point in time? I, I think I am more bullish on silver than gold, yes. And, and the reason is that uh, the historical ratios between various commodities are, are, are unreliable as predictive things, but uh, silver is relatively quite cheap to gold. It's kind of the poor man's gold. Uh, and from a, not, that it's, not that industrial usage of either gold or silver is really important because they're really money first and mm -hmm. foremost but um, yes I, I, and it's a much smaller market than gold is and a small market means it's a more volatile market and when mark, when you're in a bull market volatility is a good thing because it will be volatile on the upside so yeah I would tend to, given a choice between the two I'd, I'd still go for silver over gold although you've got to own both uh, very interesting, Doug. I uh, don't know. Is there anything else you might want to just say uh, before we part company this time? Uh, any any other final ideas or, or thoughts you might want to leave with our listeners? Uh, well, I just tell them to hold on to their hats because it's going to be a thing to behold over the next few years. And I'll be in touch with you, and I'll see you in a couple of months uh, down here uh down here in Argentina, Jay. Well, look forward to it, Doug, and maybe we do a radio show from down there, which we could do, and, and have you and, and some other people on the show. It would be great. Thank you so much, Doug, for coming on with us. It's been a pleasure. You're always insightful, entertaining, uh, thought-provoking. And, um, oh, I just, just wanted to say, you, you had, this is just a final thought here. You mentioned that the Argentinians don't have that much respect for their government. They don't uh, trust them. Uh, I think that's not true in the U.S. yet. I think for the most part, although we're seeing the Tea Party movement, 
the U- American people um, basically believe what they see on television and what they hear from from Bernanke. Is that remarkable yes. or what? Uh, and, and, but, that's, but, that, but you see that as a strength of Argentina, the fact that the people and and uh, you know we had a guest here that talked to was from Russia. He looked at the Russian situation, believes that we're following the same path as the Russians, and he talked about how our propaganda machine in the U.S. is so superior to anything they had in Russia uh, in, because because of that. He said the people in Russia they they knew that the Communist Party was you know they were liars. Uh, but here we believe our government. Do you think that's uh, an observation you would make of Americans? Totally, uh, in all regards. The only, the only, when I listen to to television news or when I read the paper, it's for entertainment pur- purposes only. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that's that's a, that's a good parting thought, Doug. Thank you so much for being with us. We do have to go to our commercial break now, uh, folks. Again, uh, check out Doug's work. Uh, it's excellent. His team is excellent. Uh, Doug has been around for, for quite a while, as have I, and has seen a lot, but he's seen a lot more than I have. He's been around the world. Uh, lots of good insights from Doug Casey. Thank you very much, Doug. Well, that's all the time we have for this week. And next week, our special guest is Nicole M. Foss. She is the co-editor of The Automatic Earth. Nicole will talk to us about the population explosion and the ability of planet Earth to cope with that rapid growth and what that means for our standard of living in the West and for human beings in general. I would also like to drill down on some of the resource uh, shortages uh, that are occurring as a result of this population explosion and their impact not only on our standard of living but also on geopolitics going forward. This is going to be a fascinating discussion with Nicole M. Foss. You won't want to miss it. In closing, I want to thank uh, the staff of Voice America for making this show logistically possible, starting with my senior executive producer, Tacey Trump, also Ruben Colombe, my operations manager, Justin Jackman, my engineer. Thanks to each of you for making this show possible, and thanks to each of you for listening again to this show. Until next week, goodbye and God's blessings to you. Thank you again for listening to Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor. Please join us again next Tuesday at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Now the thing about time is that time isn't really real.